Hi, hello. My name's Juliet Davenport and welcome back to Great Green Questions. Now, today's episode is a really meaty one, or in fact, non-meaty as it happens. So you might be aware that I started Good Energy about 20 years ago and I got involved in thinking about the environment, particularly related to climate in the early 90s. During all this time, what I've seen increasingly is people talking about that going vegan is possibly the most impactful thing you can do to minimise your environmental impact, more so than cutting down flights or switching to a renewable energy supplier. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more. So helping me ask the big question, is being vegan the only way to save the planet? Are my three brilliant panellists this week. My first guest is Guy Singh Watson. So Guy is a British farmer and founder and creator of Riverford, an organic farm and UK-wide organic veg box delivery company. And anybody who was into veg box delivery from a while ago have probably heard of Riverford and his very pithy newsletters. He's the son of a dairy farmer, the brother of a butcher, and he's got loads of experience on both sides of the coin, whether it's veg or meat. And you'll hear that he's not afraid to let you know what he thinks. My second guest is Marcus Bridstock. So Marcus Bristox is an English comedian, actor and satirist. Once labelled the climate comedian, Marcus got the climate bug when he went off to the Arctic and had a cabin apparently next to the head and didn't have a brilliant time, but he came back a climate convert. Marcus started in a short film named Neverland about the impact of climate change on a fishing village in the Netherlands. He's a judge on the World Cheese Awards, and you'll see why that's important later, and is just one celebrity mastermind. My third guest is Dr. Tara Garnett. Now, Tara is the director of Table, which sets out evidence, assumptions and values underpinning different viewpoints on our food systems, as well as a researcher at the Environmental Change Unit at the University of Oxford. She has huge amounts of data at her fingertips and really helped us ground the conversation in science and information. So between the three of them, they had a load of joint experience and expertise, and we covered loads of ground. So we talked about livestock production, the impact of vegan alternatives, the tyranny of choice, and whether our habits are actually damaging more than what we're eating. Joining the dots between agribusinesses, what does this mean for our health? And even can we farm without animals? It was such a brilliant episode. I learned so much and genuinely think we could have talked for another hour or so, but there really wasn't time. So enough from me and over to the episode. Last time I had to run around the house to get this to fix. So. Are you supposed to be breaking up periodically because you are? No. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Give me 20 seconds. I'm just going to grab a, uh, a cable. Okay, okay. Okay. And I'm just going to try and switch. My other computer is pinging away, so I'm just going to switch off the sound. I, I'm on a call, DT. Sorry. Tara, lovely to meet you instantly. Guy, lovely to see you. Oh, better clean my glasses so I can actually see. Welcome to Great Green Questions. A lot of people can feel guilty for not being a perfect environmentalist. Must we forego flights to fight the big fight? Is being vegan the only way to save the planet? And are bananas really bad? 
I'd like to kick us off with a confession. I'm an environmentalist, but I really wasn't sure what to say to my stepdaughter recently when we went for a walk. We walked past these cows and calves and she turned around to me and said, we're just breeding them to die. At this point, I didn't really know what to say. And although I came back with a comeback later, it is really difficult because there are different reasons to be vegan. One is animal welfare, but one is also to do with climate change, which is what I'm passionate about. So this week, we're going to focus on the latter with the big question, is going vegan the only way to save the planet? I have a fantastic panel. My guest number one is Guy. Guy, please do introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Guy Singh Watson. Um, I'm an organic farmer for the last 40 years or so, the founder of uh, Riverford Organic Farmers, the, the veg box scheme. And uh, did you want me to say how vegan am I? Yes. So 10 is, is extreme vegan. One is all you do is eat steak. Yeah. OK. Um, I reckon I'm about six. A six. I like that. Right in the middle okay. there. I mean, if you say, I don't know, maybe seven or eight is a vegetarian, uh, you probably eat meat a couple of times a week normally when I go okay. out. I'm probably lying. It might be a bit more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so we're in with a six now. I think I might actually make sure that not everybody can say the same number. So six is now gone, Marcus. Marcus Bridstock, our next guest. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and you can't say six on the vegan question. Hi, Juliet. I'm Marcus. I'm predominantly a comedian, or at least I used to be before this pandemic thing. (laughs) Now, look, I wish I were a six. For shame, I wish I could say I were a six. I'm drinking tea with cow's milk in it, because despite the fact that coffee is much better with oat milk in it, and cereal is better with oat milk on it, tea without milk in it is is no good. So I am going to say... Look, I'll be honest, I'm going to say I'm a two. A <laughs> two, wow, okay. Two. Pretty shabby. I'll explain more as to why later. Excellent, okay. And Marcus, I can't resist talking about Celebrity Mastermind. You, you've literally just come off Oh, this. yes. So tell us a little bit about that, just a little bit. My big win. Well, look, I won by a, a Nat's hair. I passed one less time than someone with the same score as me, <laughs> which means I bring home the prize. But money for charity and, crucially, a trip to Belfast to film it last year. I mean, anywhere where you're invited to go at the moment is is thrilling, absolutely thrilling. So that was a very good thing. Yeah, it was good. It is properly intimidating sitting in the black chair. When the lights go down and you've just got John Humphreys sitting opposite you, it is intimidating. Not because of John Humphreys. I've known John for a very long time and I'm way past being intimidated by him. He's just a grumpy little Welshman. (laughs) Seems as good a point as any to stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so guest number three, Dr Tara Garnett. Please do introduce yourself and then give me your score of veganism. So hello, I'm a researcher at the University of Oxford and I run a project called Table, which looks at debates in and around food and sustainability. On the veganism scale, actually, Guy, I disagree with your calibration. I take five as a as a vegetarian, so anything above that is tending towards veganism. And if we're going with that, I'd say I'm probably seven or eight. But but I'm vegetarian, so yeah. 
Right. Okay. So not not far off the top. So we've we've got our vegan ranking. Guy, do you have another environmental confession at all? Um, no, I'm a total saint. Excellent. Brilliant. <laughs> Saint-like environmentalist. No, I'm a bit put down by Tara, though. I mean, I'm <laughs> so, uh, Guy, I, I'm an environmentalist, but how do you finish that sentence? Well, listening, so I'm an environmentalist, but yeah, I guess I have had too many children, but they are all pretty good. I mean, they all they all live very low impact lifestyles, which and I'll take the credit for that. So, and I'm, you know, I don't know, I heat my house with all with wood, which I cut up myself. I haven't been on an aeroplane for three years, despite having business interests all over the world. I, um, you know, I buy all secondhand organic clothes and all that sort of stuff. I'm, you know, I'm sure there is someone who can prick my bubble. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty, it's sounding pretty good up there, though, Guy. I mean, close to sainthood, if not actually at sainthood. There I we do go. Have a gas guzzling pickup, but I do need that to get around the field. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm standing up for myself here. <laughs> Marcus, follow that then. I am here as a cushion to make everybody else feel better about themselves and their credentials. If Tara and Guy have any doubts at all, let me be the the <laughs> villain of this piece. I My environmental credentials have been steadily unravelling after an absolutely cracking start about 20 to 15 years ago, where I really got stuck in and then sort of gradually have undone that. But what I will say is that I haven't been on a plane since the uh, travel ban came in. So that's that's something, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, that's Excellent. not even true because I went to Belfast to I was going to say, how did you Mastermind. get to Belfast? Bicycle? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I cycled, cycled and swam across the shipping lane. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. And Tara, I'm an environmentalist, but... Yeah, I'm an environmentalist, but I have endless uh, flaws. I mean, I I guess I fly once every three years, so that's quite bad. And also, like, I'm alive. I'm alive in the UK. So by definition, I have a massive carbon footprint. Plus, I have kids who my daughter seems to use astonishing amounts of hot water. Also, I really hate gardening. And you're not really supposed to hate gardening as an environmentalist. But (laughs) I just find it sort of cold and boring so reluctant gardener well we'll have to see whether guy can convince you elsewise by the end of the conversation so the topic today is veganism and it's a central topic to quite a lot of debates on sustainable food there are many issues of moral and practical concern related to our food system affecting both humans and the environment and over the years veganism has either been lauded but it's also been villainized and it's become more mainstream as days have gone on But right at the fundamentals, let's get back to why could veganism save the planet? So Tara, I want to talk about livestock. When we look at livestock and livestock production and consumption, how does that really relate to issues around the environment, nutrition and animal welfare? I mean, there's big questions in there, but just give us some bite-sized pieces around what are the issues around livestock production? Okay, I'd zoom out before even beginning to answer that by saying that all food generates environmental impacts. If you look at the Mm -hmm. food system as a whole, from the point of production, so that's agriculture and all the inputs to it, through to processing, transport, you cooking and chilling your food and throwing it away. So obviously the meat and dairy question is is really, really important. And of this 30, 35% of global emissions, about half is taken up by animal production and consumption. So that's beef, sheep, chicken, pork, 
all the rest of it. So they are a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. They've been implicated in deforestation and land use change, both directly. So that's when you have land being cleared for cattle grazing and indirectly because they eat feed. So they eat soy and maize. And that's where pigs and poultry come in because they are the main consumers of these feed grains. And to some extent, Animals in some systems can coexist with other wildlife, but in other more intensive systems, you have these monocultural grain producing systems that support very, very little wildlife and that are used to feed our animals. And of course, you've got the animal welfare, animal ethics implications as well. As people's demand for meat rises, they want more meat, they want it cheaper. And that sort of incentivizes more intensive systems that deliver that cheap meat. And of course, it's a two-way process. It's not that we want the meat and then the industry supplies it. It's the industry supply that generates our demand for, for meat in ever greater quantities and varieties around the world. Yeah. And there are some really big players in this part of the food cycle. Guy, you're an experienced farmer. You've been involved in both dairy and meat farming. Where do you play in this role? I mean, you you see some of these very large players who do dominate this marketplace. Is there a different way forward? Or are are we on this sort of trajectory? If we carry on with meat, we can only do it the way they're doing it already. Uh, I'd support everything that Tara said. I, I just can't see that we can live sustainably on this planet and continue to eat anything like the amount of meat that we do produced in anything like the way that it is. If you then add to that the, um, you know, almost inevitably as as less developed nations climb up the kind of income scale, they they eat more meat and dairy and eggs, you know, so that's going to add to it. It's just, I'm afraid to say, you know, there is no hope if the world adopts the diet uh, of, you know, Australia, US, UK, I think are about the worst. Um, there, There is no hope. I mean, there's no amount of cleverness in agriculture is going to make that sustainable. We have to reduce our consumption of meat, uh, dairy and eggs. I mean, having said that, I mean, some is worse than others. And one can argue a long time about the virtues of grazing ruminants, so, you know, sheep and cows, and and whether the benefits of permanent pasture can outweigh in terms of biodiversity and promoting soil health and sequestering carbon, whether that can outweigh their methane emissions. One can also argue about methane emissions having a whatever it is, a seven or a 10 year half life. And therefore, if we have a stable herd of ruminants, we're not actually contributing to climate change. But I don't think all those arguments, to my mind, and I've heard them all from, you know, grazing livestock producers, none of them convinced me that we can continue to consume meat and animal product in anything like the scale that we do. They're all very persuasive, and they ought to be, because it's important. But what are we going to do about Stilton? (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, really, you know, they're all, genuinely, they're all sorts of meat substitutes, or at least protein that you can eat that isn't meat, that is delicious. But the cheese question is a very big one for me. Very, very big one for me. (laughs) 
if only there was some plant-based version of cheese that was in any way acceptable and trust me i've tried and i I should now declare my hand when i said that i'm a a two on the vegan scale i am a qualified cheese master and i judged at the world cheese awards not so long ago and i just love the stuff i can't for all the serious arguments about why we shouldn't be eating it i can't imagine a world without cheese in it i'm with you marcus and uh, and butter as well there would be i mean i could happily give up red meat i mean very yes. rarely eat it now and and if ever i do have a craving for it and indulge it it's almost always a disappointment and i think what am i doing eating this but i do i'm with you on the butter and cheese i think there is quite a strong argument that you can if we all ate a lot less that we could produce you know butter and cheese in an environmentally sustainable way from grazing ruminants there is no argument for feeding a high yielding dairy cow soya grown in the, you know, what was once Amazon, you know, mm. mixed with grain grown in Ukraine uh, to produce milk, which is of inferior flavour and nutritional quality under very questionable animal welfare conditions. To my mind, there's no argument for that system. Mm. So in this future world, maybe no meat, but definitely Stilton. It's a, a- That's all of it. <laughs> you Sorry, touched Martha. on one point earlier. The question you asked Tara was clarify on the land use change. Do you just want to explain that a little bit so that we, we understand what you mean by that? Okay, well, whether it's you know the savannas of Africa or, or the, the uh, North America or South America or whether it's rainforest, you know, when you plough them up or cut the rainforest down and burn it and stir up the top 30 centimetres of soil, you lose huge amounts of carbon And I think I'm right in saying that until about 1970, half the carbon dioxide, anthropogenic carbon dioxide we put up with there was from a land use change. It's declined in its importance uh, in the last 50 years, but mainly because we've already done all the damage, you know, largely. Most of our arable soils are, are, you know, have been raped and lost most of their carbon already. So there's a limit to how much more damage you can do. But obviously, as we continue to clear rainforest, um, you know, we're still putting more carbon dioxide up there from that. Tara, is that about right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think there's also, you know, we live on one planet, but lots of things happen in different things happen in different parts of the world. And what what we've seen has been that, in fact, in in places like Europe and North America, we've actually seen forested area increasing. And that is helping sequester some carbon because we've exported the problem. We're we're importing from uh, tropical regions where you know, deforestation is growing apace. And so it's a mixed picture, but the picture, however you look at it, it's not good. Marcus, I mean, is this all news to you as the consumer of cheese? I mean, it's a huge amount, sort of nearly 15% of man-making greenhouse emissions comes from livestock. That's massive. Yeah, no, it's not news to me, unfortunately. I wish it was, because then I could go, my God, I promise you guys, I will make these changes. <laughs> and like I said, my environmentalism, as such as it is, it is it's a mixed picture, definitely. But in, in many ways, it's in retreat. In terms of choices I make as an individual, like I say, I went in hard 15, 20 years ago, made massive changes to my life. And after a while, became dispirited by the fact that industry and government were not doing it and I thought well well whatever I thought was neither here nor there but no it's not a surprise to me but it it is very good to be reminded of these things because 
there's a sort of ebb and flow where this stuff's concerned rather like guy like i don't you know i don't eat red meat very often and then when i do i always think oh this is this is not really okay and you know the more often i feel like that then the better things are i think the move towards calling things plant-based probably is a positive one i think unfortunately the word vegan has become politicized too much and plant-based might be helpful because it doesn't say vegan it doesn't say oh well you mustn't have you mustn't have honey because you'll upset a bee or something you know it it says plant-based which i like i think well yeah that's a good aim that's a good if if most of what i eat is plant-based that's a, a very good step forward isn't it we're worried about carbon emissions at this point and we're already seeing some of the discussion in the energy markets where they look at sequestering carbon and there's a lot of debate about something called carbon capture and storage where we take the carbon and drill it into holes in the ground there's a lot of discussion about what is that a good thing or a bad thing i mean is that a possibility for the agricultural sector could we remove the carbon i mean i've seen i've seen something recently i think it's a, a new collar for a cow that absorbs its methane burps i mean it, could we use technology to move ourselves out of this tara what do you think i mean i think i think you can sum it all up in three words no free lunch whatever you do <laughs> is going to have a consequence so the thing about the the earth is that everyone wants a bite of it everyone wants to do their climate solution on the earth and there is only so much of it to go around and we need to produce food some people would argue that we need to produce a bioenergy from it and we also need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and there will be trade-offs there are some synergies you know guy has has highlighted the fact that in on degraded soil soils which have absolutely no organic matter in them no fertility within them if you graze animals right you can sort of kick start the process of vegetation growth and sequestration and that way you get a possible win-win between rearing animals and sucking carbon out the atmosphere but these are limited contexts geographical contexts and it's a time limited sort of activity because after a while the soils reach a kind of saturation so there is potential and you can also do things like plant trees up to a certain point you can co-produce with with food production that's called agroforestry or with livestock production that's called silvopasture but you're still using land and arguably and there is a kind of raging argument at the moment do you farm land more extensively in a more sort of wildlife friendly manner which usually produces slightly lower yields of food or do you squash all your food production into one place and leave land free for nature and for rewilding and again those arguments they have their advantages and their disadvantages and it's all very very context specific and specific to the jobs and the cultures and the identities of the people nearby but you know there is no one answer and everything has has its consequences i'd also like to i have a stake in the cheese argument as well so (laughs) cheese doesn't particularly do it for me but i really like yogurt and i really like milk and I don't think it's an either or world where you say, right, we shall never have these foods. I think it creates hostility and I think it's unrealistic. I think it's about putting food and certain types of food back in their place and time so that we have them and we kind of get rid of these false 
dichotomies and polarizations. And I think that's at the heart of the mm. veganism debate. It's like you're with me or you're against me. And I think that's that's stupid. And the last time I checked, food taboos lead to people becoming untouchables and it becomes exclusive and it also becomes a kind of religion and we really don't need more religions and we really don't need more tribalism at the moment and I think the other thing about it being black and white is that sometimes there's this idea that you sort out your diet and you're sorting out the planet that is just not the case Changing how one eats is an important part of the picture, but there are any other number of things that we have to do equally urgently, which includes cutting down on the driving and on the flying and heating your homes in a more sustainable way and and doing all these things. And it's not an either or thing. It's both and in a hurry, really. Tara, do you dig any of the non-dairy yogurts? Have you tried them? Yeah, I have. And they're horrid, actually. (laughs) I mean, I've found some coconut milk no. ones that I think are acceptable, but in the UK there just aren't as yet as many coconut farms as I <laughs> no. think there will be. But that's uh, that's a big part of this picture. Where I think the discussions about food are based very largely on well, what do people want? If you can make stuff that's plant based that people want, then that that it's it's done. You've done it. Is it nicer than meat? Is it as affordable as meat or cheese or milk or whatever it may be? Because at the moment, vegetables are much more expensive than they need to be. They're harder to get than they need to be. They come from all over the world at times of year where that makes no sense and are priced as if they've just been picked up the road. That makes no sense. And in, I would say, five to ten years ago, the versions of protein that you might get if you weren't going to eat something meat-based or dairy-based were not that good but my god we've seen a change in the last four or five years where like going out and eating something now buying it in the shop or eating out in a restaurant that's vegetarian or vegan is generally excellent although we did try some tempeh last night and that's not great (laughs) and definitely not improved by buying it we weren't ready at the time freezing it thawing it and then cooking it the the already wretched texture was made much worse by that process we imagine perhaps it was wretched throughout (laughs) guy i mean you've been known to sort of talk about this excess of choice i mean marcus is saying that we can give people new things new choice and that that will help us deal with that but do you see that as a barrier to sustainability or an enabler uh, I do, actually. And you're right. It is one of my uh, bugbears. Um, we lost the uh, remote control for our telly. And my wife looks up online. We could have it delivered into the Devon countryside by, uh, God, I can't remember which hideous multinational retailer it was. And it could be here by seven o'clock this evening. I mean, it was Amazon then. No, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. But, <laughs> but um, it's. You know, do we need that? I mean, God, we haven't had the control for three months. No one's watching telly. <laughs> you know, why can't it? You know, the idea that we have to have everything that we want and we've got to have it now, whether it's remote control to your telly or whether it's avocados from Mexico. You know, I've run a business very successfully based on um, on, on limiting people's choice. 
And, and, you know, when you go to some of the most expensive restaurants, you'll have the least choice. And, you know, when people go on holiday and they're wandering through the markets in Spain or Provence or wherever, they're very happy to buy just what's available. You know, why is it when we log on to a card or wander into a supermarket, we have to have everything from wherever in the world, 365 days of the year? It's just a source of a huge amount of stress. And a huge amount of environmental and social damage. So someone's paying for that. You know, it's been on an aeroplane for you to have it. It's been a van's been driven, you know, many miles through the country lane so that you you can have that. It all comes. Someone is working a zero hours contract so that they can jump into the car and deliver it to you whenever you want it. You know, these they are immensely environmentally and socially destructive. This thing that we've got to have whatever we want now and we've just got to get out of it i just think it's just like eating loads of meat is unsustainable you know unrestrained choice is just completely inconsistent with living sustainably on this planet there endeth the lesson (laughs) we actually have this argument quite a lot at home and i think there are two ways of looking at this and it all depends on what your counterfactual is and it's a really ugly word the counterfactual but i do think it's quite useful because if you're assuming that we live in a world where infinite choice is just an inevitable trend where people want to eat meat, they want to eat cheap meat, and that really means intensive poultry, pig and beef production, then providing these plant-based alternatives, I think is probably a less bad alternative to that status quo. But if you can imagine a different world where we say, do we want this choice? Can we do things differently? What are our goals? What makes us happy? Then I think these very processed plant-based foods that are manufactured often by the same corporations that make us the meat-based foods, they're part of the problem. They've locked us into a, a status quo that we might not want. So in a sense, it depends on what your vision of a good world looks like. If, if it means that we can just do everything the same, but now we have plant bacon or plant sausages instead of the meat version, then, you know, that is probably better for the environment than the meat version. But if you say, well, do we need to do this? Can we do something different? Can we arrange our lives and our societies and our economies differently? Then I think other possibilities open themselves up. You know, that includes Guy's Box Scheme and all sorts of innovative, exciting opportunities. But I think the main thing is that future is never going to be one thing, is it? It's going to be all sorts of different ways. And, and that... I don't think we should be black and white about this. I think we should try these things out. There's so much really interesting innovation going on in the alternatives world. And, you know, that's what we're good at at Humans. It's innovating. And, you know, the frankenfoods of yesterday are things we take as normal today. So, you know, I think we have to look at it with the eye to history as well, not throw anything out, but also just be careful about what we assume to be good or bad and be very self-reflective about you know Mm. our assumptions i think there is a black and white about choice (laughs) i really do and and i don't even think it's what people want it's what we've been sold you know it's what supermarkets make money out of all that choice you know they make most money out of the most rarefied highly branded lines and um I think we've just got to reject that. And I'm going to sound like a puritanical, but I mean, we've got to learn to live happily, you know, a a simpler life, relying on what things are closer 
to hand. And, you know, I don't want to sound like an Amish or something, but that I do think that that is, that's where, you know, our redemption lies. And actually, that's where our happiness lies, I'm pretty sure. Mm, too. Mm. I've always liked solutions that don't involve me having to make any changes or sacrifice, <laughs> as I think most people like. But I, I've said this from the, the beginning of my involvement in anything to do with environmentalism. Each school should have an allotment. In my view, each school should have some animals to look after as well. If you wanted more people to leave school vegetarian and vegan, give them some cows and some chickens and some pigs and some sheep to look after and make them understand that when you have X, Y or Z, that's what it looked like when it was alive. That's what it is to go and lift a chicken and take the eggs from beneath it on a daily basis. This is what it's like to grow your own vegetables and all the rest of it. This is what it takes and where these things come from and re-establish those connections. A nice, easy solution, which I think would be a vast improvement to the curriculum. And as I say, I think is a long-term, if not solution, then at least improving influence that involves me making no sacrifice, which I do like. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the choice thing, Guy, just sort of instinctually. But but what I'm not clear about is who gets to decide what is too much choice. Is is it one brand Me. of cereal, five? Yeah, well, one person's too much choice is another person's not enough. And there's going to be a, a discussion to be had about it. That sounds like very academic when you say things like that, but it is true. We need to have an inclusive discussion about this. Do you, I mean, Guy, in, a, in an ideal world, do you see, it, it, when you talk about the, what do they call it, the tyranny of choice, which I totally agree with, you know, uh, with the thrust of what you're saying, but start taking it away incrementally, and I struggle with that. But do you mean up the simple end of that seasonal and locally produced fruits, vegetables, meats, cheeses, if you wish, available in our shops, as opposed to 365 days of pineapple and strawberries? Yeah, I'm I'm going to go back on myself a little bit by saying I'm not a hardline dogmatist on localism. I'm not going to live without lemons. And I'd find it pretty hard to eat with, live without onions. And it's very hard to have an English onion from May, June. But I think, you know, our imports in terms of vegetables are roughly 50% of the vegetables, fruit and veg we eat. I think that could very easily be 20%. And I don't think anyone would notice the difference, mm. really. And they might even enjoy the seasonality a little bit it should be just illegal to put anything on an airplane you know food you know just should, it's just ridiculous and it, it also should be damn nearly illegal to grow it in hot houses as well you know so there's some just environmental madnesses that are supported by a marketplace you know we pretend that the marketplace ha- kind of has the solution to our problems or that's what our government would like us to believe and it just absolutely doesn't. I mean, you know, we have, we have laws. You can't build a house, a single glazed house, and heat it to 20 degrees centigrade. Yet you can build a greenhouse and have um, subsidized energy that's the single glazed and heat it to the same temperature and be selling local food and everyone tell you what a good job you're doing. I mean, it's complete environmental madness. And um, is, that, is that what happens in hot houses then, Guy? Yeah, we yeah. See those... a tomato produced in that way would have five times the carbon footprint of one grown in Spain. A pepper would have roughly ten times. Oh. And, uh, you know, so we don't sell hothouse produced vegetables. We don't sell anything that's been on an aeroplane. And there are a couple of other things that we're, we're, we're trying to work down, looking at the carbon footprint of everything we sell and, and try and just stop selling the madness thing. So for two months a year, we sell apples from New Zealand. 
I mean, they're dreadful. I mean, sorry, they're not. They're very nice apples. But in terms of the um, carbon footprint, they're off the scale. We shouldn't be selling them. And, and, and this will be the last year that we do. I mean, do we have to have a sweet, crunchy apple in July when we've got raspberries and strawberries? I mean, can't we just do without them for a couple of months and then... Yes. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm ranting. I'll stop. <laughs> I think no, we I can. D- I don't think you are. I mean, I think that's a big part of the solutions to this stuff is getting used to the idea that nothing bad's going to happen if for a couple of months of the year there just aren't apples. Yeah. They just, they just aren't. They're just not a thing. And I, I suppose that another thing that really stands in the way of making the right decision environmentally is the desire for everything to be absolutely consistent and for to avoid any form of risk of inconsistency. I mean, that may sound ridiculous, but that's how our modern food chains work. I mean, mm. you, know, you have to have a consistent product, you know, 52 weeks a year. And, and if you, you know, you get it wrong more than once or twice in the year, you would lose the contract. So a huge amount of energy goes into and pesticides and refrigeration goes into ensuring that it is consistent. On a related subject, but slightly different Still on the question of choice, Tara, I don't think this applies to you because I think you said that you're vegetarian. But I'm curious to know, Guy and Juliet, if you do ever eat meat, are there any bits of an animal that you don't eat? Because I am I have for a long time felt that if you are going to eat meat, you've got to take responsibility (laughs) and eat as many bits of the thing that has died for your benefit as you possibly can. Snout, trotters, bumholes, all of that sort of stuff. And insects as well, all of which I have I've eaten all of the things I've mentioned there. I'm just curious to know if you're not vegetarian which bits are you willing to see thrown away well i can i can make that confession first of all i quite like insects they're quite tasty especially if you put them in something else like chocolate but uh we did used to keep pigs for a while before too much of my family became vegans or vegetarians and i have to say the bits that are still left in the freezer to this day are the trotters i can't quite (laughs) bring myself to do something with them i should i know but i keep looking at them going i don't know what to do Chuck them in a padder bag and send them to Ballum. I'll have them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent. You're on, Marcus. Yeah, I, I, have, I haven't gone well with trotters. Um, I've done bumhole and insects, and I can't remember what else you mentioned. I'll, I'll eat pretty much en- anything. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I must have just cooked them wrong. I've been served them wrong trotters. But, uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Marcus. You know, if you were going to, you know, it's a out of respect to the animal but i mean out of respect to the environment we should eat every last bit and we are spectacularly bad at it in the uk yeah but it's it's partly an education thing i I think i mean i can't the only one i really can't manage is tripe i just i just again i've had that and you just need to cook it right yeah, so I'm told, but I've had pied de paquet in, in France, which is trotters and tripe. And I managed the trotters perfectly well, but the, the paquet, not so much. Now, but I mean, which, that's a, it's a t- I think we should have one more confession. Which vegetable can you not eat? Uh, I definitely have. I, I can put mine in there. I find turnips really hard. I find I don't know what to do with them. And but everything else I can pretty much cook. What's the turnip, Julia? There are many different sorts. So there's a winter. Oh, okay. There's winter turnips, which are really without any virtue at all. You're much more sweet. <laughs> Maybe that's what summer, it is, guys. Summer winter turnips. Summer turnips. If you can't enjoy a summer turnip, you really are a total heathen. <laughs> With regret, Juliet, the, the solution to any vegetable that anyone claims to not like is environmentally ruinous because butter is the answer. <laughs> turnips are delicious. Why? Because butter is delicious. 
Uh, butter and with turnips, white pepper, I would recommend. They need plenty of pepper, plenty of salt and uh, really lashings of butter. I don't enjoy fennel, but <gasps> there is there is no food that I won't eat. Um, oh, I so you I can send me sh- the fennel. I always eat fennel. I love fennel. Yeah. I don't eat sugar because it's, you know, because it's bad for my brain more than anything else. But that's just a, a choice rather than ethics. But with everything else, there isn't a vegetable that I don't like. Not one. And not a fruit that I don't like either. There's one or two that are boring, but I don't still don't mind them. I mean, that, that slightly brings me to a question uh, sort of what I wanted to ask about the sort of the fact that normally veganism and vegetarianism is seen as the healthy choice for people. And particularly as we kind of move to the fact that the vegan sausage roll, which has become so, so kind of famous in its choice, and particularly as I think Boris Johnson now thinks he, he, he says it ain't bad. Marcus, what, what do we think about that? Because we're talking about this plant-based lifestyle. We're talking about, and, and as soon as you put the word plant-based in it, everybody thinks it's healthy. But should we be just be going out into the high street and buying lots of vegan sausage rolls? Is that good for yes. us and good for the planet? Yes, yes, it is. it's a massive <laughs> step forward. And the thing is, the thing about that is there's no need to call it a vegan sausage roll for a kickoff. If you stop someone going into Greg's or rather coming out of Greg's and say, what have you got there? And they say a sausage roll and you say what's in it, they will not be able to tell you. And I mean a pig based sausage roll. They won't be able to tell you what sort of pig, which bits of pig, what else is in that pig mix. They haven't got a clue. Just call it a sausage roll. Does it taste nice? Fine. Then it's a sausage roll. Uh, So I think that the Greg's vegan sausage roll is an excellent step forward. Firstly, it it makes plant-based eating more commonplace and the more people do a thing, the more other people are likely to do it. And secondly, it's one less bit of meat, isn't it? If you go in and you go, I'll have a sausage roll and it turns out to be vegan, you'll know the second time if it's disgusting, you're not going to have it. So I think it's progress. So, Guy, fast food and the vegan movement coming together. Good? Bad? Indifferent? Um, Yeah. I mean, fast food doesn't have to be bad and it doesn't actually have to be highly processed either. I haven't got anything against fast food or what my children describe as dirty food, which they... um, (laughs) uh, And I, you know, using plant-based proteins or, you know, whatever, you know, I don't have anything against that. If it's replacing highly processed food anyway, then, um, yeah, no, bring it on. And if you're not sure I'm going to be queuing up to eat it myself, I mean, I do really, really love vegetables, but I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) And Tara, one of the things I notice about a lot of these kind of vegan alternatives is if you're going to try and prepare them at home, a lot of them now come in plastic packaging. It's very difficult. So unlike a vegetable, which comes in its own packaging most of the time, unless somebody decides to put it in plastic, which is ridiculous. But that's what I tend to find. And it is one of my biggest frustrations, the amount of plastic that comes with sort of tofu or whatever it is that I buy to cook up my own meals at home. Yeah, well, I mean, I think packaging is an issue, but the the environmental impacts of food are way, way more than the, the packaging right. itself. And I think, you know, going back to are these a good thing or are these a bad thing? As Marcus says, if they're replacing some industrial meat-based alternative, you could argue that you're reducing animal suffering. The environmental impact will probably be marginally lower, the sort of greenhouse gas impact. When it comes to the health aspects of it, they're still quite high in salt. They can be quite high in sugar. They're not great. And and should that be a problem? Is there a place for fast food in the world 
well, yes, there is a place, but it's disproportionately large place. And I think, again, we have to look at these things in a joined up way. We have a global health crisis. We have two billion people worldwide overweight or obese. We have people dying from the the diseases of poor consumption, overconsumption. We are producing foods that are killing us and they are killing the planet as well. I think we do need to start joining the dots here and we need to look at who is pushing what for whom. You know, these corporations, they've been making meat so far. They can just as easily switch to making plants. The power structures are the same. They are not challenged at all. Where is our health in this? And if these processed foods are also highly fossil fuel dependent in in their processes of manufacture and distribution, as well as the packaging, that you speak about. So, you know, these things are connected. So they're sort of a solution, but do they also lock us into a problem? I think we have to look at it in in this multifaceted way. Yeah. And and Guy, would Riverford ever consider supplying lab-grown meat through its boxes? Um, No. But that's not, I mean, I'm not particularly putting that up as a rational argument. I'm just saying it's more of an emotional argument. And I guess it's been, you know, we like to sell primary produce. We, we do sell some meat, actually. I mean, time amount compared to the vegetables, really. So, no, I can't, I can't see it. But I can absolutely see the argument for it. And I'm not going to argue that others shouldn't. And lab-grown meat, Marcus. It, it, I mean, I think there was a scene in um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the restaurant at the end of the universe, when the cow comes up to the table and explains all the different cuts that you can take. I mean, that's the ultimate in sort of grown Perfect. meat. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I'll have it in a heartbeat. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Why would you not? And But I, I say that as someone, I, I'm sort of gastronomically curious. So on trips to China, when I've been working over there, for example, I'm fascinated by the stuff that they will eat. And, and as I get older, less and less interested in the squeamishness that prevents us from having those things. The environmental arguments against having them are very solid. But things like insects, I'm like, but, but are they nice? And if they taste nice, then eat them. It's as simple as that. I, so the same for me with a, you know, a slab of something that's been grown in a laboratory. If that's more environmentally sustainable, then great. And this is what I mean about the education thing. I mean, I remember when Hugh Fernley Whittingstall got very involved. He was talking particularly about chickens and intensive uh, poultry farming and stuff. And he showed chicken meat being sprayed off the corpses of of dead chickens for things like nuggets and i remember feeling very conflicted about it because i was like but if that meat is all on there and can be sprayed off and pulped and turned into nuggets that people want then good don't put it in the bin for heaven's sake that was a that i don't much care about the life of a chicken i don't want them to suffer unnecessarily but i i you know it's just not very important to me but i like if it's if it's been alive and you can get whatever you can get off it i I mean look juliet the point is i'd eat the beaks if i could (laughs) okay and i love i I mean you've mentioned insects a couple of times tara i'd love to get your view on insects should i mean i think nico rosberg's have launched his new insect brand of food today i mean slightly odd sort of formula one driver getting into the environmental movement but tara should we be eating insects or are we going to run out of those at some point as well yeah before i answer that can i just make the distinction between lab-grown meat and plant-based alternatives because they are different lab meat is actually 
flesh grown in a lab and it's still at the research stage and it is interesting it is promising and it's you know worth exploring i would give it a go out of curiosity as and when it hits the market but that won't be for some time now because it's really expensive there are high energy costs involved in its manufacture as well so as a sustainable solution it's certainly not there yet when it comes to insects there's there's insects and insects so insects have traditionally been eaten around the world they've been wild harvested as they start to become farmed, again, it really depends on the species. Some need to be kept in quite a warm environment. What is their feedstock? What are they eating in order to survive? So we have to think about the energy costs of, of insect production. Just because it's insects doesn't mean it's sustainable. It's it's all about the, the how. You know, when it comes to trying them, well, actually, I'm allergic to shellfish and there are risks that of allergenicity. So that if you're allergic to, to shellfish, there's a chance you might be allergic to insects. So sadly, I have not been able to try them, but I have kind of no moral objection or even a kind of visceral objection to it. Fair enough. I had an enormous Thai water beetle and I can tell you that the wing casing was really unpleasant, but both uh, like in terms of texture and uh, a sort of bitter taste as well. But yeah. you only know that by trying it. So I won't be having water beetles again, but locusts are, are, are perfectly nice and crickets are perfectly nice. And Morio worms are okay. I have a pet chameleon who enjoys all of those. But they do make they do make excellent animal feed if you're going to keep cattle particularly and, and they have protein supplements, yeah. insect based animal feed. As far as I understand it, Tara, is an yeah. improvement in theory. But although, of course, you're of course, you're right. The how matters with all of these things. Yeah, no, most definitely. And sort of maggots feeding on food waste is is a really promising area, so mm. to speak. Mm. But it's I think it's not currently legal in the UK due to sort of animal byproducts regulations, yeah. that kind of thing. And then, then Tara, you touched on yogurt earlier and sort of that you found no alternatives to yogurt. And there are obviously the, the sort of milk alternatives and using soy or almonds or oats. Are those interesting from an environmental point of view? Do they have a lesser impact than dairy or are we just changing one problem for another? So let's just go back to my first point, which is that all foods have an environmental impact. Almonds probably have the highest impact of, of all of them. Oats have the lowest impact, but soy offers the best nutritional bang for your carbon buck. So let's imagine you took milk out of the diet altogether. You're going to have to somehow obtain your nutrients and your protein from some other sources. And taking into account, we will eat way more protein than we need to. But nevertheless, you are going to have to get it from plant sources. If you're drinking almond milk, you are basically buying expensive water. It's like six or eight percent almonds there. If you're buying oat milk, it has the lowest impact. But again, very little protein. Soy has something comparable to dairy and it has a kind of mid-range environmental impact, which is lower than uh, dairy milk. Usually, you know, people raise the question, oh, but what about the rainforest? What about the Cerrado? As a matter of fact, most of the soy that is used to produce the milk that, you know, these milk alternatives is actually grown in Europe 
or sometimes imported from China, but it's not associated with the destruction of the Cerrado. That's where animal production comes in because the vast majority of soy grown in South America is grown to feed pigs and poultry and to a lesser extent, the dairy cow. So yeah, I think they have a role to play, but I think it's just, we have to consider the the health and the environmental implications together in order to ensure that what is the point of the food system? Obviously, it's for pleasure, it's for cultural, all sorts of other things. But fundamentally, it's to feed people effectively. And so many people around the world are not being effectively nourished. So as we move forward, as we try to transform the food system, we have to think about these other goals as well. There's one uh, one other area that we haven't covered is that in in terms of the environmental impact of food, and then we, I think we've pretty much agreed that we should try and eat a more plant-based diet. But then if you were which plants, um, we really need to try and move from eating annual crops, which need to be sown every year. The ground needs to be ploughed, often sprayed off with a herbicide first and, and, and you know, loss of carbon. And often in a, a monoculture where there's really almost no biodiversity and move away from those crops to eating perennials. And though I agree with Tara, there's no question that almonds have a higher, as they're grown at the moment, anyway, have a much higher environmental footprint than oat milk. An almond is a perennial and could be grown in a very different way. Though, you know, Tara says your soya bean is not a soya bean. It depends on where and how it's grown. They're almost never quick and easy answers to these questions. Yeah. So we're going to go into a little bit of a grey area now, which is taking this to the extreme and really asking if when we walked into our supermarkets or our local shops or our, our vegetable boxes, everything was 100% vegan. So we have a 100% vegan world. I mean, you've talked about this, about vegans buying into agribusiness and big food. What happens then? Would it be better for the planet if every time you walked to the supermarket, the whole thing was just vegan? Would we get there? Or is there some fundamental structural change we need in our food businesses to really deliver on low impact on the environment longer term? Well, I I don't know how to produce food in a vegan system organically. I mean, you know, our farming system is reliant on rotations where we grow grass and clover and it helps to build up the fertility and the health of the soil and to sequester carbon, fixes nitrogen out of the atmosphere and then we plough that in and it rots down and we grow vegetable crops. But I mean, during these three or four years when it's growing, we graze it with animals. I mean, we could just mow it off, you know, burn fossil fuels to mow it off. But I don't think, and then we use the animal manure to sort of top up the fertility during the two or three years that we grow vegetables. I, I just don't, you know, if I was growing on the fens on very, very fertile soil, I might be able to do it. But we would need some major structural changes. I'm not saying it's impossible, but every last shred of organic matter, every bit of human feces and urine, even our dog poo and everything would have to go back on the land to try and maintain the sort of fertility um, we need, you know, if we were going to do it without chemical inputs, uh, you know, someone could argue that we should be using windmills to make nitrogen, ammonium nitrate fertilizer, and maybe that might work. Um, that still leaves you struggling for phosphate and potassium. So, our whole agricultural system has been based on a rotation using animals, and I'm not saying it would be impossible to farm without them it would be very difficult so until I know how to do that it feels like it would be hypocritical for me to advocate you know it's all becoming vegan yeah Tara 
Yeah, I mean, you said, would it be better? And I guess it's better than what and better for what? For what? I mean, I, I guess it would be unequivocally better for animal suffering. But I'm with Guy that I think the problems that we face are about so much more than something that you can deal with with an on-off switch. I think we really, really need to quite substantially cut back on our consumption of animal products. But there is a role for livestock. There is a role in maintaining soil fertility. There is also a role when it comes to kind of pleasure and the nutritional value of a limited quantity of animal products. So we shouldn't just chuck it all out. I I would like to go into a shop, and it needn't be a supermarket, by the way, where we have a much, much greater choice of ideally far less processed foods that are largely plant-based in origin, but not exclusively so. And I think we need to think about who is profiting? What jobs and livelihoods can be can be fostered and enabled by a transition to a better food system that is better for health as well as for the environment and for the kind of dignity of our labour? And I think fewer animals is part of it, but that's not no animals at all. So, so Marcus, a world with no sheep and no cows in our fields is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you do you care? An awful thing. No cheese. <laughs> oh, of course. There'd be no cheese. I mean, you know, there's there's an argument that says you could keep some sheep and some cows and have their uh, milk without killing them for meat. But it doesn't really sort of join up. It doesn't make any sense environmentally. No, I don't. I mean, firstly, I've felt for a long time that all solutions to the environmental problems that we face, moving towards sustainability, however you define that, have to be appealing. They've always had to be appealing. It was always the case, I think, that if you made renewable energy affordable, that, that would do the job. That's, that's better. That's the best marketing. And I always felt from the get-go that offering people business solutions, stuff to invest in, in terms of moving towards sustainability, is the right way to go. Because you have to start from where you are. And we do live in a capitalist society, so make it appealing. And the same is true with food. It's got to taste good. It's got to be appealing. And sometimes, you know, words like tempe and stuff like that, that's sort of, it's close, but it's not quite there, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. And I just want to round off things to ask you the question once again and give you 20 seconds to answer do i need to be vegan to save the planet now we have a stopwatch just so that you can see yourselves so tara i'm going to ask you first do i need to be vegan to save the planet no you don't need to be vegan but you need to cut back considerably if you're your average uk consumer you need to cut back very substantially on the amount of meat and dairy products that you eat but also don't fly or heat your homes in unsustainable way put on another jumper and i think i'm out of time by now yes brilliant perfect perfect timing i love that heat your homes in a sustainable world and a jumper as well as eating less meat guy what do you think no, you don't need to be a vegan, um, but yes, you should definitely eat less meat. Our average consumption is about 1,600 grams per person per week. We've got to get that down to maybe four or 500 and try and make sure that what you do buy is, is grass-fed and don't eat so much chicken and pork. Great. Thank you, Guy. And finally, Marcus, 20 seconds. Do I need to be vegan to save the planet? Yes, you do. Absolutely. <laughs> Categorically, you do. But if you want to save the planet, you should put on a cape 
da 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 I think you'd be better served spending your life trying to help the planet rather than save it. And if you're trying to help the planet, you should have a little bit of very high quality cheese, not too often, and uh, probably a little bit of meat, not too often. And if an animal dies for your benefit, eat the whole thing, including the beak. I love that. So landing on Eat the Beak. Thank you so much, everybody, for being fantastic guests. That's been fascinating. And I've learned a huge amount through our discussion. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Great Green Questions. If you like the show, then please rate and review and hit follow to never miss out on an episode. If you have a Great Green Question of your own that you would like us to answer please feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter at Davenport Julia or Insta at Davenport.Juliet. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. <laughs>